If you have your Bibles tonight, we're going to open to John chapter 16. We're doing a short section tonight, so we'll see. I mean, I can kind of stretch a verse or two for hours, I feel like. so It may not be much shorter than usual. We'll see. But tonight we're only doing 11 verses. And um, a little short section, but a powerful section, reminding us of what the Spirit is here to do. So if you're in your Bibles, we're in John chapter 16, verse 5. We'll go to verse 15. And in there, and then next week we'll finish up chapter 16. And the week after that, Jesus' high priestly prayer, which will end the upper ring discourse. So we've got about three weeks left here. If you remember where we're at in this long upper room discourse, remember Jesus has just told the disciples how the world is going to treat them. And he's reminded them to love one another because in face of what, in light of what is about to happen with what they're about to face, which is the world's hatred, they have to be reminded, love one another. The world will hate you, but yet love one another as the church. And he's set a a dichotomy. He set a a contrast between how the world's going to treat the church and how the church needs to treat the church. The church and its relationship to itself will be one of love, and the world and its relation to the church will be one of hatred. So with that dichotomy, he turns to speak about the coming Spirit, the Holy Spirit who will do His work, the work that the Spirit has been set to do, in the Godhead. And this work is going to come out in two ways. It's going to come out first. Jesus has just been talking about the world and its hatred for the the Christians. And so he's going to start by talking about the Spirit's relationship to the world. And then he'll come back and talk about the Spirit's relationship to the church. He wants to talk about what the Spirit's doing. And the Spirit, as we know, Like God is omnipresent, he is God. And so he has a work to do in the the heart of humans, whether they be believers or non-believers. The Spirit is at work. The question is, what is he doing? And Jesus is going to explain that tonight. He's going to explain that tonight. And this will probably be something... um, You may not have heard as much about the Spirit in relation to the world, but remember that Jesus in in the Gospel of John is setting up a, a big contrast, a big contrast between the world and its treatment of Jesus and the church and its treatment of Jesus. And really, this example of what the Spirit is going to do continues to show that, that division between the world and the church. And we'll talk about, say, the, the portraits of the Spirit in Luke and Acts that seem different. They, I really think they're the same work. I really do. Um, but there's a different highlight. There's a different highlight. Because in Luke and Acts, the highlight is that the Spirit is actually changing human hearts. He's changing human hearts to bring them out of the world into the church. And that is the focus And that's actually not the focus of John. John's focus is that the Spirit is testifying against the world. And I think, I think, 
that his testifying against the world, his convicting work, when we think of conviction, we tend to think in terms of, oh, oh, I've been cut to the core, I'm, I'm convicted. I feel guilty about what I've done wrong. But remember what we've talked about, this, this advocate who's coming, the Holy Spirit, the advocate. It's a legal statement. And a legal conviction is different than that kind of conviction of the heart we talk about. What John's talking about is the Spirit is going to be prosecuting the world. I think that it is through that prosecution that hearts are changed. They feel guilty. They feel convicted because they know they were wrong. And that's a big reason why repentance is part of the Christian faith, isn't it? Because until we can admit that we were wrong, we usually can't believe in Jesus. Right? The, the, twin, the twin act of becoming a Christian is what? It's repentance and belief. It's not just belief. It's not just repentance. It's repentance and belief. Those two things are tied. So first you must admit you were wrong. So listen to what Jesus says about what the Spirit's going to do in relationship to the world, starting in verse 5. Jesus says, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Now this is interesting because remember, they just asked him where he was going, right? So we have to deal with that tension because he was just asked where he was going that they could not come at the beginning of this discourse back in chapter 14. And he says, now none of you are asking what has happened. What has happened what I believe has happened is in the process of Jesus speaking these words to the disciples, they're finally beginning to understand that he's about to die. Now, I don't think they necessarily know when he's going to die, but I think that the, the knowledge that he is going to die has hit them. It's clear they still don't have any understanding of, A, when it's going to happen. They don't know. Right? They're totally caught off guard by the garden. Right, They have no idea that he's about to be arrested and killed immediately. So they don't have any idea of when. And they certainly don't have any idea of the significance of the death. It is not until the resurrection and the spirits poured out that they understand that the death was necessary. Right? That it had to happen. In fact, it was the very vehicle of salvation, wasn't it? They don't understand that much later. But I think what they've started to understand is that Jesus' death is coming. And they're grieved. Right? Jesus knows they're grieved because it's finally hitting them that his death is approaching. And so he says, now I'm going to him who sent me. I'm going back to the Father. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Why do none of them ask? Because they understand they understand that he's going to die. Again, not necessarily when, but they seem to understand that something terrible is going to happen to their Lord. Jesus goes on, verse 6, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. The sorrow of Jesus' fast-approaching death has filled them, and they are grieved hearing what the Lord says. All these things he's been saying in chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and now 
16, they're just overwhelmed. They're overwrought with their grief. They can't handle any more of what Jesus is saying. So he says, let me remind you of something. Let me remind you of something. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, you don't understand, you can't understand, but this spirit that is coming is the dawning of the age that you have been waiting for as a people for thousands and thousands of years. The promises that go all the way back to Abraham are coming true. That promise of the blessing that would be upon the people. That blessing, according to Galatians 4, is the Spirit. The blessing of Abraham. So the Spirit's going to come, and, and we have been waiting for this for ages. And that age that you've been waiting for, in which the Spirit will be poured out upon all peoples, that age is coming. And I'm going to inaugurate it. I'm going to make it happen. But I have to go first. If I do not go, that cannot come. So Jesus says, realize I am here as a man. I cannot touch every single person's life. I cannot heal every person that needs to be healed. I cannot preach to every person that needs to be preached to. But when I go, when I die, when I'm resurrected, when I send the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the risen Christ, can touch all of humanity. You're not bound with the limitations of being just a solitary man, but through the Spirit, who is the very presence of Jesus in the life of believers, all people can have access to the Father, can have connection with Jesus because of what Jesus is about to do. And it's that reason, Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go it's to your advantage because then the Spirit will come to you. He will dwell, what he said earlier in chapter 14, he will dwell among you and in you. And you will never, ever, ever be again without the presence of the Lord. The Holy Spirit, the very presence of God dwelling in the believer. It's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I do, I will send the advocate to you. He's still using that term, the advocate. Remember, it's a legal term. It's a witness. It's someone who comes along beside as a defense or as a witness for the prosecution. It's a dual role. He defends the Christians, but he also prosecutes the non-Christians. Verse 8. And when he comes, this is speaking of the advocate, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, before I go on, 
This is a notoriously difficult passage to interpret because it's very short and concise. And he says some big theological realities in a few small words. So it's a notoriously difficult interpretive passage. I'm going to give you my interpretation. And there's a lot of questions that surround it. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'll talk about the interpretation. He says this, When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Okay, sin, righteousness, and judgment. One of the major questions is whose? Whose of those things? Whose sin? Whose righteousness? Whose judgment? That's one major question. Do they all apply to the same group? Or is it different groups for each one? Another question is, what, what role is he, is he doing this for? Like, it, it, it's, what group of people is he doing this convicting work to? That gets convoluted as well. So you have to ask all these questions. I'll tell you what I think. The beginning of verse 8 says he will convict the world of these things. Okay, the other confusing part is, remember, this is a legal context. So what does that word convict mean? We tend to think of conviction, like I told you, that kind of like guilty feeling, right? Like we think of Acts 2, right? They were cut. They were cut to the core, right? And, and the 3,000, they said, what shall we do, brothers? And then Peter tells them what to do to find salvation. That's what we think of when we think of conviction, like someone getting cut to the core and they're like, oh, they're cut to the heart. And they're like, oh, man, I'm so guilty. What can I do to be different? That's not this context. If it is, it's only in a derivative way because the main idea is legal action. So what does convict mean? It means prosecute. The Spirit is prosecuting the world. He's making a case against them. That they are wrong. That they are in the wrong. Okay, so when it says, and he will convict the world according to these three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. What this passage is saying is that the Spirit is going to prove to the world that they are wrong. Now, granted, the main audience is not even the world. It's actually to God himself, isn't it? He's the judge. He's acting as the prosecution to prove to them that they are wrong about these three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay, So he's prosecuting the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. What do each of those things mean? Concerning sin. Because they do not believe in me. Okay, That next question I told you, we have to ask who's the audience or who is this group of people. I think the pronouns tell us. When it says concerning sin, it says because they do not believe in me. Who is the they in this passage? The last group that was talked about is the world. He will convict the world concerning sin. He's going to convict them that they were wrong 
about sin, that they are in the wrong about sin. What is their sin? That they do not believe in Jesus. So what is the first charge? What's the first charge for the prosecution? It's the world's sin. The world is sinful. What is the evidence of their sin? They don't believe in Jesus. The Spirit will prosecute them for that. Second, he will prosecute them concerning righteousness. Because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Whose righteousness? Follow the pronouns. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. I think it's talking about Christ's righteousness. He's going to convict the world that they were wrong about Christ's righteousness. They thought he was not righteous, but he is. So the Spirit will convict them for being wrong about Christ's righteousness. And the evidence of Christ's righteousness is he's going back to his Father. And we will no longer see him. That's Christ's righteousness. The world is in the wrong according to Christ's righteousness. Because what, what did the world believe? They believed Christ wasn't righteous and therefore would die a cursed death. That's the point of the hanging on a tree. Deuteronomy says, any man who hangs on a tree is cursed. And the Jews interpreted his death as such. Hey, he hung on a tree. He must be cursed. He's not a real Messiah. He's a false Messiah. He is unrighteous. The Spirit's going to convict them because they were wrong about Jesus' righteousness. Lastly, concerning judgment. Whose judgment, again, follow the pronouns, what's it say? The next person. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Whose judgment? The ruler of this world. Who is the ruler of this world? Satan. Satan is the ruler of this world. What the world is not understanding is that Satan has been judged. What's the evidence of that? Oddly enough, the cross. The cross is the evidence of Satan's judgment. And the Spirit is going to convict the world because they are wrong about Satan being judged. The world lives under the rule of Satan, and in fact, they love it because they love darkness rather than light. So, they actually believe that Satan has not been judged for his evil, and by extension, that they too will not be judged for the evil they do. Jesus says the Spirit is going to convict the world that they are wrong about judgment. Satan has been judged. Jesus is about to do the judgment by hanging on the cross. That is the judgment of Satan. And he has been judged, the spirits convicting the world, because they are wrong, believing that evil has won, that evil is still in control, that evil still has power to defeat God, 
and that judgment will never come to those who do evil. The Spirit convicts them. No, judgment is coming and has come. Not only has it come in the death of Jesus that Satan has been judged, but there will come a future judgment which everyone will face about the things they have done, the things they have not done, and of course, whether they believed in Jesus. Right? So that is what the Spirit is doing in relationship to the world. And it's odd because we tend to think of all the good things, and I say that, um, like, I guess, positive things. I don't mean that this isn't a good work. Because actually, convicting the world of its evil is a phenomenal work that the Spirit does, isn't it? It's a good thing. But I mean, we tend to think of what the Spirit's doing in positive terms. Good thing. Oh, he's changing hearts. He's making them new. But at the base, what John is saying is actually, no, he's prosecuting them for their evil. He's actually standing against them as a witness. So what I was going to tell you about Luke and Acts is I actually think that the convicting work where people's hearts are changed, I think that might actually fall under what this work that he's doing of prosecuting them. That is actually in the prosecution, in the conviction that the Spirit is doing, that they find out they are wrong and then can be changed. But they have to find out they're wrong first. I don't think people can change if they don't find out that they were wrong about these things. And obviously, like sin, like what could be more obvious than that? If they don't find out they were wrong about not believing in Jesus, how could they believe? They have to find out they were wrong to not believe in him. So, I, I almost wonder if that, that positive work we talk about, with that, that conviction the way we normally use it, oh man, I just feel guilty, I want to change. That's a work of the Spirit for sure, but I almost wonder if it's because he's doing this convicting work in the world that people sense their own guilt. They sense their own wrongness and then are turned. They're turned and converted because of what he's doing. Now, this is not the only work of the Spirit. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's a work that is highly undervalued. It's highly undervalued because we do not remember that the Spirit is standing against the world and its evil. We too must do the same. Just as the Spirit does, we also must stand against the evil of the world with our own testimony as a witness ourselves to Jesus. We're meant to be telling them they're wrong about these things. They're wrong about sin because they do not believe. They're wrong about righteousness because Christ went to the Father, the perfect righteous Savior, and they're wrong about judgment because judgment is coming and Satan has been judged. Verse 12. Now, again, even just listening to that, that's a heavy word, isn't it? So imagine the disciples standing before Jesus listening to all this. Can you fathom how overwhelming this would all be? They're hearing these things for the first time. They have no idea what's going on. They're just wrapping their heads around the fact that Jesus is going to die at some point in the near future, they think. And Jesus has to lay this all on. He's like, no, 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 you don't get it. This is the last chance I have to tell you these things. Jesus must be able to sense how overwrought they are 
how overwhelmed they are because he says, he says this, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus has all these things left he wants to say, that he wants to teach them, that he wants to offer them before he leaves, but he knows he has no time left. I have so many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them right now. But don't worry. That's his point, don't worry. You know why? Because when he the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Jesus says, in the same way the spirit is doing this prosecuting work against the world, he's coming to you as your teacher. You, the disciples who believe in me, the Spirit comes not as prosecution, not to convict you of the ways in which you were wrong, though he does do that. We know that. But he comes to you as a teacher, as a guide, as one to lead and direct you into all the paths of righteousness, into all the truth, and to disclose to you what is to come the great teacher, the Holy Spirit, who Jesus sends. What's his point? His point is that this Spirit who is coming, you're not going to be alone. He'll be with you. He'll be present. It'll feel sometimes like I'm gone, but the risen Christ, he still lives with you through his Spirit. And he's going to teach you He's going to guide you into all truth, disclose to you what is to come. He's going to teach you. What does that mean? Well, first let's talk about what's actually going on in their situation, which is inevitably what Jesus is first referring to is who Jesus is, right? The Spirit is going to teach these men who he was. He's going to teach them who Jesus was, what he did, and the significance of what's about to take place, right? That's the, what Jesus has just said to them in this dialogue, in this discourse. He said to them, I am the truth. And now he's saying the Spirit's going to guide you in all truth. Well, the first referent of truth is Jesus himself. It's Jesus himself. The Spirit is going to teach them who Jesus is, what his significance was, what he accomplished <coughs> by dying and being resurrected and by pouring out the Spirit. That's the Spirit's work, is to teach these men who Jesus is, and in fact, help them record it by creating the New Testament, the books of the New Testament that we now have, the letters and the Gospels and the Apocalypse, Revelation. Right? All of those are created under the guidance of the Spirit who is teaching these men who Jesus was and what his significance was. But that's only the first referent. This also still has an application to every disciple of Jesus that the Spirit still today leads us into truth. 
about understanding who Jesus is, and many things of our own lives as well, things that are not recorded in Scripture that we can't just point to and be like, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to move to Portland. So you're not going to find that, the direction for your own life in the Scriptures. These are binding on all people, on all Christians. They must submit to this word to be Christians. But there's a lot left over, isn't there? A lot of questions, a lot of searching and wondering. The Spirit's going to do that work too. He's going to lead you into all truth for the disciples then and now. And He will still disclose to us what's going to come. Give us perception. Give us prophecy. But it's again all tied to the Scripture. The Spirit is not divided. He does not speak things antithetical to the word that he wrote himself. Holy Spirit, the author of the scriptures. We know they're connected, the things he says, with what he wrote. But he still speaks to us today. Still leads us. And Jesus says, don't ever forget that the Spirit will never be disconnected from me and my Father. Why? Because he doesn't even speak on his own. He only speaks what he hears. Who's he hearing from? Well, the point is he's hearing from the Father and Jesus. The Spirit speaks what he hears. Jesus says, He, being the Spirit, will glorify me. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. This is not a statement of subordinance for the Spirit. For my Reformed brethren out there who often read this passage and use it to diminish the Spirit, which is uh, many things I've read that actually make me legitimately sick to hear about the very Spirit of God in this passage from many different writers, mostly of the Reformed tradition. The point of this is not to make the Spirit less. The point of this is not to make the Spirit almost like a lesser God, that He's just subservient. No. He serves just like Jesus did. In fact, it's the same language that's used about Jesus, isn't it? The way He's subservient to the Father, radically humble, has deep humility, so does the Spirit. Jesus' point is not to say, well, he takes from what's mine, so he's under me. That's not Jesus' point. Actually, the point he makes by the very next verse, the very next sentence, is actually a statement of his radical unity with the Father. That's the point. The point is not that the Spirit is somehow less than. The point is that Jesus is equal to the Father. That's why you can say the Spirit takes of what is mine. And then he says, why did I say he takes of what of mine? Is, why did I, excuse me, why did he say he takes of what is mine? Jesus said, I say that because everything the Father has is mine. Jesus' point is not to say the Spirit is less than. His point is to say, I and the Father are one. Just like he does in chapter 17. His point is to say, whatever the Father has is mine because I am equal to him. I have a radical unity with the Father. 
So anything that the Spirit could be said to hear, anything that the Spirit could be said to disclose, anything that the Spirit is taking from the Godhead to use and utilize, it's, as my, it's mine just as much as it is the Father's, because we are equal. That's the point of what Jesus says. He says it himself. There's not much room for interpretation when Jesus interprets it himself. You have to accept that interpretation, because Jesus explains it. The point of this is the radical unity of God. Jesus and the Father are one. So we know the Spirit who comes to us, the Spirit who dwells in us, He's connected to the Father and the Son. He's not disconnected. He will not speak on His own initiative, but rather He speaks what He's hearing from us. In fact, He is the very Spirit of God. In fact, he searches the deep things of God, is what it says in the scriptures, doesn't it? The spirit, like the spirit of a man, searches the deep things of him. So the spirit does search the deep things of God. And that's where we close tonight. A reminder that this spirit who is coming for the disciples and is already here for us believers today has still, for 2,000 plus years, and will forever on into the distant future until Christ returns, and until we are reunited perfectly in the presence of God, will do the work that he has been set to do. And that work is to prosecute the wor world, to prosecute the world for its wrongness about sin and righteousness and judgment, to prosecute them, to convict them, because they are wrong. They have assessed things wrong. They have not understood things as they are. And he will continue to do that work of prosecuting, standing against them. And for us who believe, he will continue to do the work of teaching us, guiding us, leading us, telling us what's to come, guiding us into all the truth. What a powerful advocate as a witness for the defense to stand with us when we are weak and tell us the things we need to hear. And a powerful witness for the prosecution to remind the world of how wrong, how evil, how dark it has been. A dual work. And we're reminded tonight that we too were once part of that world who needed prosecution to be told we thought wrong, to make a case against us so that we could hear we were wrong, so that we might turn and find that this witness against us, this advocate against us has become an advocate for us, a witness in our defense. Let me bless you tonight. Lord, thank you, as always, for each person in this room tonight. Lord, I pray your spirit would do your work in their lives. Would your spirit guide them into whatever truth they need to hear, and primarily that is the truth of Jesus. Would you take them deeper into Jesus and who he is?
Would you guide them towards you, Lord? Would you disclose to them the things that are to come so that they might have wisdom and knowledge? That they would be prepared and ready to do whatever it is that God would call them to do. Would you teach us again, O oh great teacher, that we might think like you and act like you, be conformed to the image of Jesus, that we might be like him. Spirit, that is your work, and we trust in you to do it. Do it again in our lives. Do it in each heart that is here tonight. Lord, continue to stand against the evil of the world, and Spirit, would you change hearts when they find out that they're wrong? When they find out that they were wrong about sin, when they were wrong about Christ's righteousness, when they were wrong about Satan's judgment, that judgment would never touch them when they do evil. Lord, when they are convicted of that wrong in their heart and they sense their own guilt and misery, would they respond to you? Would you make yourself known to them so that they can respond? We love you. We submit to you in whatever it is you would ask of us, Holy Spirit. Teach us again. We pray all these things, Father, in the name of your precious Son, Jesus, and by your Spirit's mighty teaching power. Amen. Thank you, guys.